And by the way, Rocket Man should have been handled a long time ago. <laughs> Little Rocket Man. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able. But hopefully, this will not be necessary. That's what the United Nations is all about. Will, Will could come up a little, if you don't mind. Coming up, coming up, 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 up. Speaking. Get in there. How's that? How's that? How's that? Well, for some reason, better. for okay. some reason, he's quiet to me, but I can still hear right. everybody. Me too. Okay. I don't know what it is, but it's fine. All right. Uh, oh, that's better, Will. Just my own fucking uh, there we go. life. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Uh, all right, you're listening to the Chapo Trap House Amateur Hour. We're here with yeah, professional podcasts. Clowns and buffoons running around here. <laughs> like We're a bunch of goddamn orangutans got into the freaking recording studio. They're playing with the knobs and buttons. If, if, if everyone could hear that, uh, we we're all trying to get our half-hard dick into <laughs> into a, a woman's pussy. <laughs> On the, that's what we think was on the other side of the glory hole. I think it was a smoking hot woman's it's definitely mouth. a 10 out of 10 smoke show yeah. on the other Ooh. side of that hole cut the wall of the men's bathroom. We were 50% hard and just jamming it in there. <laughs> we were actually against the walls. All, all three of our dicks are trying to go through the glory hole at the same time, like the yep. three stooges in the dowager's apartment. Get out of here, shout ahead. <laughs> this is... Uh, Okay, this is Chapo Amateur Hour. We're here. We're here today interviewing professional, professional, neatly produced podcast. Blowback. It's the Blowback Boys. I hope you guys. Hey, hope everyone out there is beating the heat. We're killing it today with two cool fellas by the name of Brendan James and Noah Colwin, and we are talking season three of the amazing professionally produced podcast. Blowback. Blowback hey guys. Boys, how's it going? Howdy. It's all right. It's all right. I um I don't mind the 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 more spontaneous um you know kind of free flowing atmosphere of this show. I don't know. I don't think I would ever really want to like associate myself with it. You know, in any way beyond being a guest. You know, professionally. Yeah, it's yeah. like, professionally. It's like, well, it's like it's like when you're a kid and you go over to your friend's house and it's kind of dirty, but he has the cool M-rated video games. Yeah, this is rated M. This podcast, absolutely rated M for. For men in a glory hole. <laughs> yes. Okay. Boys, it's so good to be. I mean, and by the way, Brendan, I mean, like, I don't think you, I mean, you'll never be associated with Chapo Trap House. So I just want to no. make that clear. Oh. I want to make that 100% Kyle clear. <laughs> you will never, ever be associated with His name has been rent the from the escutcheon and burned. <laughs> the producer vanishes. <laughs> the occluded producer. <laughs> no. uh, you no. off your ass out of all those pictures of us <laughs> next to the goddamn wall. <laughs> Thank you. But boys, we are we're here to talk blowback season three. It's dropping today. It's the premiere day. So first, let me ask you, how's the premiere going? You know how those overseas box office? I mean, are you need to be saved by that? Or does domestic BO look bafo for blowback season three? The Oof. Korean Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I actually I, prefer the Chronicles of uh, 
Korea is in the as styled after the Chronicles of Riddick. We we had to uh, for overseas markets. We had to edit out the uh, gay kiss that we did. Yes, um, <laughs> but I think that uh, I think that that doesn't that doesn't affect the 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 spirit of the show. Taking that out, so it was revolutionary in America for American podcasts to have two hosts kiss. You know the, Chi- yeah. the Chinese version of Blowback <laughs> season three. You know it's, it's been, a her- hearty it's very, handshake. It's been very tastefully edited out. Yeah. But I mean, the message, the message, the revolutionary message stays true. Absolutely. Also, there's an added little bit about the uh, necessity of the uh, PL, uh, the People's Liberation Army of China to defend uh, the Taiwan Straits at all costs against American incursions. We do kind of have that in the show. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so that's not wrong. So let's get into it. Season one, the Iraq War. Season mm. two, Cuba. Season three, Uber. Korea. <laughs> I just love that's how John F. Kennedy called it that. And that like people were waiting for the fucking they were waiting for missiles to rain from the sky and scour the flesh from their bones and they were hearing the president talk about Cuba on television. <laughs> well, I mean, that's actually what they that's why they called the video game that. They they it was Cuba? because of that. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> because of how JFK pronounced Cuba. Well, also there, there's a clip I think we played in season 2 where he, I think it's during the debate with Nixon, JFK is like we are receiving word that Castro is a Marxist that <laughs> Real Castro. Castro, and he calls him Real, yeah, Real. not Raul. We've heard that Ray from Star Wars is a Marxist, and I'm just like Real. What is uh, what? Yeah, I like tele- Boston. It's like a random number generator as accents. You just like you have no fucking idea what's you know like what word you come up with, what they will have, what they will churn out at the end. It's chaotic. So not not Cuber, not Cubert, not not Real. We're talking Korea. And yeah. I guess where I want to begin with you is that in, I, guess, I guess just like in the American historical imagination, the Korean War is most often referred to as the Forgotten War yeah. or, you know, a war forgotten no more. Or, uh, hey, what happened with Korea? Was that a thing? Oh, we forgot it. Oh, well. And originally, like in thinking about, OK, why is Korea the Forgotten War? Sort of similar to the War of 1812. It's like I used to think, well, it's just because we lost. Right. So that's why, oh, we decided to forget it. We lost it, so no one talks about it anymore. But, I mean, we lost the Vietnam War, and nobody has shut the fuck up about that for the last, like, 70 years. There have been so many goddamn movies about Vietnam, so many songs about Vietnam. It's just uh, post-Vietnam syndrome. It's just like, we've never stopped thinking about Vietnam, a war we also lost. So what's going on here? Even the one thing that is about uh, Korea in popular culture, the television show and the movie, they're just about Vietnam. Yep. We say, Matt, we make that exact point in the first episode because, yeah, at the time, like, MASH was a huge show. It definitely, you know, the word Korea is in it, but it is it is just a big allegory for the war that was going on at the yeah, time. There's a, there's a John Prine song, uh, like, Hello in there, where the lyric is like, Davy died in the Korean War, don't even remember what, like. We lost Davy in the Korean War, and I still don't know what for. Don't matter anymore. It's like hyper cliche. It's beyond cliche. Which is a uh, problem for us because our whole show is, hey, everybody, turns out the memory hole sucked sucked this war into the oblivion. And it's like with this one, sort of the official his- history beat us to the punch because it is now, you know, you genuflect and you say the forgotten war and uh, the troops that fought, we, we don't remember them and blah, blah, blah. So, so I think that, that that cliche is kind of, uh, we, we, we try to 
make sense of why why we have started calling it that all of a sudden. Well, I mean, outside the uh, charming and lovable antics of, you know, uh, Hawkeye Pierce, Trapper John, Dago Red, Hot Lips Hulahan, you know, uh, uh, Radio, Radio Raheem. Who's the, who's the, who's the other fucking guy? <laughs> attention all personnel, attention all personnel. I am, uh, there's hate and there's love. <laughs> uh, Alan Alda, Alan Alda going, going into the mess hall demanding that they put up more pictures of black people. <laughs> Throwing the boombox over the DMZ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Whoa>. so yeah. <laughs> so I guess where I'm going with this is like, okay, so Vietnam, a war that was lost but not forgotten. Korea, no. a war that, that was also lost but like severely memory halt. And I guess like where I'm going with this is that like Korea as the forgotten war is not a war forgotten just because we lost it, but there's like, it's, it's sort of a propaganda term because if something's forgotten, as you say in the first episode, it's like, well, nothing really important happened there. So right. it's just really like there's no history of account happened. So like, uh, did anyone really die even? I mean, who knows? I don't know. It's very a very minor affair. So what do you think is really going on with the 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 the, the memory glory holding of the Korean War? <laughs> One of the the things that I would sort of it's something that I actually only thought about in the in the last like week or so as we were putting it together. But basically, in you know like. The, the standard line about the Holocaust, like literally the one thing that, you know, sort of is, is goes along with the pedagogy about how people learn about the Holocaust and event is never forget. So and yes. that's because we're told that like the Holocaust is like, you know, this history making genocide. And in the case of the Korean War, I find that, you know, like I found that like there is this constant invocation to forget. And as Brendan was saying, it's because it's like, well, you know, maybe it has it's connected to like what we're doing over there or what we rather what we did over there uh, and continue to do. And in this case, it's because, yeah, America uh, directly participated in or assisted to the point that it directly participated in, um, you know, stuff that as guests, you know, people that we talked to for the show, you know, basically say is on the level of genocide. And, and, the, and, the, and you know, and that's just a shorthand for the whole scope of horrors that forgetting a war helps you blot out. Well, I would say we, we didn't participate. We, we, we ran it. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the most, <laughs> Oversaw the, most it. the most destructive, I mean, I think we did an interview the other day and someone asked us, did anything surprise you <clears throat> about, about this, this season or in researching the season? And I, I actually will say that while we knew the contours of what happened and wanted to do a show about it, uh, really getting into the level of destruction it did surprise me. It actually did surprise me how thoroughly we destroyed North Korea and the uh, brutality of it <clears throat> on every level. So, you know, there's one reason we don't want to remember it is I think there, there's several reasons. There's so many reasons, of course, because unlike Vietnam, it did not happen during the era that like that, that cultural moment that the rest of us are forced to you know, live under the shadow of forever with like boomers, you know, having their moment in the sun to protest something and to feel as though their, you know, government is betraying them and they tell a story about it forever after. In the 1950s, things were rather more buttoned up uh, and you don't have that synergy. Also, unlike Vietnam, which was viewed as kind of and was crudely imperial, where we're just taking over from the French, we don't belong in that country, what are we achieving, blah, blah, blah. Korea, even in the canned history, when you do see it, it is the idea that, well, the North did invade the South. You know, that's, 
you know, that that's on them. And then we had to, we were forced to intervene. And also, and was, um, actually, it wasn't just the U.S. It was the U.N. actually. Yeah, it's you the know? dawn of technically was not an American uh, war. It was a United Nations police action. It was a police action by the U.N. All these little terms starting to sanitize it. And of course, it's the founding. Ooh, some thunder there. Ooh, yeah, it's it's the founding, uh, you know, case study of what would become the go to a uh, method of, in, of quote-unquote intervention, which is uh, liberal humanitarian intervention to help somebody else. So that gives it this air of legitimacy <clears throat> as well that is not like Vietnam. And then, yeah, even more than Vietnam, it's, it's I think, convincingly argued, we destroyed that place uh, on a level that is indistinguishable from how we describe, uh, you know, Nazi policy or... Uh, some of the worst atrocities of World War Two, and and the other thing that I'll you know I want to emphasize there is that like this is continuity in two two respects. First, it's continuity in terms of the, the deadliness of the American military involvement. The people who executed the firebombing over Japan, who were the biggest advocates of an aggressive nuclear strategy, like Curtis LeMay. These are the people who were, in effect, running the show as far as, you know, bombardment goes in Korea. And that was the American ball game. If we're talking about, like, you know, what the actual investment was and, and what the linchpin of the American strategy there it was dropping a ton of bombs. And then the other piece of where the continuity is important um, to affirm what Brendan was saying is that the role of small state politics, let's let's call them. The idea of a country like Korea, which is a small state compared to Japan and China and the other larger powers with which the U.S. is really, you know, thinking through what it wants to do in Asia. The idea of Korean or, or of uh, small states as being um, really effective in uh, diplomatic imperial competition is also a 20th century, I would argue, like American tradition dating from it sort of we sort of try to illustrate in the show, I think. Um, from the real beginning of the age of American overseas imperialism in the, you know, in the decade of, you know, uh, and, you know, the attempt, the, the successful annexation of Hawaii, ultimately, um, and the efforts to also uh, bring the Philippines and Cuba, you know, as we talked about last season, into the American orbit. Mm -hmm. Well, OK, you talked about like the, the sort of the canned history of like if you were to, if you were to find it, encounter it in a history textbook or, or have someone on the news explain to you like why there is a North and South Korea. Like, okay, like mm -hmm. the North invaded the South. I mean, could you sort of describe for us what the canned history or justification for why America fought the Korean War in the first place, but also then like what, what you discovered in researching the show in terms of like what the real story is? Yeah, I, I think that the, the, as you say, the potted history is that after World War II, in which there was supposed to be a new order of international law, Joseph Stalin ordered his puppet in North Korea, which had, Korea had been divided at the end of World War II <clears throat> after it was liberated, that Joseph Stalin ordered Kim Il-sung to invade the South for reasons that aren't entirely obvious uh, in, in this version of history, uh, to take over the Korean Peninsula. The North did so, and as we kind of mentioned a second ago, the United States had to rally the international community to put together a UN force to push them out. And then... It, depending on your politics, I think there's an emphasis on how we overreached uh, and should have just done that and then gone home or that, you know, it we was got justified. Cocky. Yeah, that, that we got cocky, et cetera. Um, or, or that it was all justified, <clears throat> again, depending on your point of view. 
what we try to offer in the show and lay out is, I would think, a more accurate um, uh, history that's also more up to date based on actual Soviet archives being being opened up and other things, is that it's very convenient for Americans to tell themselves this all erupted on June 25th, 1950, that it sprung into life, the Korean War, at that exact moment. But in fact, that disintegrates the closer you look at it, because for several years before the quote-unquote Korean War, tens of thousands of people, as, as many as 100,000 people, were slaughtered in the South, Koreans, by the Southern government under suspicion that they were communistic or, you know, plotting against the government or <clears throat> just too um, independent. There's an island called Jeju uh, Island in which most of this happened because it was not it was supposed to be an autonomous island of the government crackdown. So how much sense does it make that before the Korean War, quote unquote, started, 100,000 Koreans were dead? And then you start to see that the division of Korea itself in World War II was actually just another escalation of what had long been a conflict between nationalists, communists, collaborators with the Japanese, and that this has been a civil war boiling for a long time that entered a new phase in 1950. And in fact, most of the border clashes leading up to 1950 were started by the South, not the North. And of course, there was Hawk this massive- get hit. There was, there was this massive, uh, you know, uh, extermination campaign, as it was called at the time, in the South. <clears throat> so you can get into the, the ways that the North justified uh, its attack. But ultimately what it was trying to do is what both regimes wanted to do, which was unify Korea. This 38th parallel, this line was 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 by everyone seen as temporary. And it was well, not a border. That's an important point that you guys make in the first episode, this idea of the 38th parallel. Like, oh, like uh, the North Korean soldiers, like they crossed the 38th parallel. The 38th parallel was not in any sense an internationally recognized border. It was a line that was drawn by, like, essentially the U.S. State Department. Correct. And so the fact that, like, the North Koreans, they did, like, oh, they didn't recognize or disrespected it. Well, like, no one else in the world did either. This was a line that the U.S. drew to separate the communist North from, like, the, the nationalist, capitalist, like, you know, uh, our, our allies in the South. And the U.S. officials, State Department, whatever, it was a sacrosanct line when the North crossed it. When we pushed the North out of the South Korea and then quote-unquote, rolled back into North Korea, it was then referred to as a, quote-unquote, imaginary line. So when the North Koreans are crossing a border in their own divided country, it's, it's a sacred line that everyone recognizes and, and they're, they're violating international norms. When we do it, it's an imaginary line. So I think that very idea complicates the entire uh, notion of Koreans invading Korea. So this is something we try to lay out in the show. And then, of course, along with that, hopefully, you know, uh, nice bit of context, you then see what the what the war actually was like and why China, for example, started to participate in the war later on. I want to get into um, the actual prosecution of the war, how brutal it was and some of the uh, characters involved on both sides. But before we get into that, I want to talk about. Uh, like North Korea, because, mm -hmm. you know, like as a, as, a, as a result of the Korean War or the fact that it was, a, on I guess, from our side, a loss or a, a draw, if you want to be charitable, mm -hmm. uh, Korea, there are two Koreas, like there's North Korea and South Korea. And just sort of the ways in which North Korea is still talked about to this day, because, it, you know, it was a member of the Axis of Evil, it has <laughs> nuclear weapons, it's testing missiles. It is still very much considered like, you know, a rogue state that is talked about and imagined as both an existential threat 
to peace and security of the world, if not like even like the West Coast of the United States in terms of their missiles, but also at the same time, a completely backwards fucking like a completely backwards, bankrupt, backwater joke of a country. And with like, you know, a totalitarian, like abused populace who like, you know, cries every time they say the, or think the name dear leader and all this shit. But like, the, but you can like in the first episode of the show, you, you have a quote from you have that like famous quote from Donald Rumsfeld where he's talking about if you look at like the satellite images of North and South Korea at night, you will see the South lit up like a Christmas tree, a, a, a vital center of commerce, capitalism and global markets. And then you look at the North across the 38th parallel. It's just black. It might as well be off the map. It might as well be the fucking ocean. It's just like it doesn't exist. And he's like, how could this come to be? You know, and then like you have a, a quote from someone, one of the guests you interviewed that talked about sort of the um, artificial way in which that satellite image is created, despite like whatever reality it reflects. But like just in terms of what is what is that comment by Rumsfeld reflect on how uh, America sees North Korea and its people and like its culture and just the history of that country? Yeah, it's it's one that doesn't seem to deserve a history uh, in America. It's 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 a country that we just I think really in the 1990s is when it becomes the uh, sort of Saddam Gaddafi style heel, um, because <clears throat> as a tiny bit of context up until that point, because uh, North Korea had a horrible decade in, in the 1990s, uh, up until that point, North Korea had long outpaced the South in development. It industrialized very quickly. Somehow it was able to rebuild from being 40, every city being 40 to 90% destroyed in the war to um, turning things around quite quickly, uh, delivering a higher standard of living. And it was actually the, the North back in those days that would send food aid to the South. I don't think people in our day and age can really uh, conceive that. Uh, what went wrong in, in the 90s was they were uh, obviously denied of the majority of their trading network once the Soviet bloc fell apart. They were victim of sanctions by the United States, and then there were two horrible floods <clears throat> that wrecked the country, followed by a, a drought, and that any road to recovery was blocked at every turn by the United States because we wanted to starve them out, literally. And there was a famine in which at least half a million people died. So at that point, the North is also starting to look for a nuclear guarantee, which itself is impressive if you think about it, because up until that moment, the North actually was uh, very late to the nuclear party on the South, on, on the Korean Peninsula. We introduced nukes there in the 50s. The South start, tried to start its own uh, clandestine program in the 80s and or the 70s. And it wasn't until uh, basically the late 80s that the North said, I guess we should start thinking about a guarantee. This is after being demolished as a state by the United, being holocausted essentially by the United States uh, only a couple decades before. So the state obviously reflects that reality. It's, it's a bit of a, it, it is a garrison state. There are some interesting parallels with Israel, actually. Um, I, I wouldn't say uh, point for point, but there's some, there's some funny coincidences. But <clears throat> we exaggerate the level of uh, grayness and totalitarianism there. Um, and I'm not saying that political practice in North Korea is, is, is a, a great model, but it's very explainable and it is deeply, deeply exaggerated. I think in our first episode on I Run This Montage, there's this one MSNBC lady who uh, she's listing the horrible things about North Korea and the, 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 what sets it apart from the world. And on that list is murder and rape. And it's just like, you know, crime 
it's it's one of those it's it's one of the few countries where crimes happen you know it's just like <laughs> yeah. anything it's like why is that on the list you know and then of course there's all these other great things she says did you like, know north korea do you know north korea keeps a significant population of their of their own citizens in prison no yeah. Bre- brendan it's different though it's their their state authorities do the murder and rapes yeah do you think right. of any other country where that happens no we don't <laughs> do that here no and 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 there's a there's a real money quote where she says um uh, and they actually organize their people into a class-based system that orders their <laughs> lives. And, wow, that sounds terrible. But anyway. And also, uh, it's like, oh, yeah. it's bad there. I sure don't want to live there. But she, yeah. I wonder why North Korea is like that. What happened? Yeah. And and then, of course, on, on the nuclear question, just to just to close it out. Um, and by the way, like like it is not one giant concentration camp. That, that that is a parody of what it is like there. There are obviously restrictions on a lot of things that Americans would not want, uh, and you know it doesn't mean that it's a, a lovely place to live at all times. Although again, I think we do car- cartoonize uh, what the entirety of of the country is, and I we speak to several people who have been there, and they have a very different picture than what you would hear on the news. Uh, however. The other thing Dennis is the Rodman, nuclear- featured guest, featured well, yeah, co-host. Um, <laughs> but the uh, yeah. but the 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 nuclear point is another point entirely, uh, which is not hard probably for listeners of this show to understand that they they don't want to go the way of Saddam and Gaddafi, much as Iran did, did not want to go that way. Well, and that's the other like I think you know one of the things that the the Korea story I think sort of really tests the like American liberal stomach of, which is that like you know. Yeah, like it's not a like 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 there's a a it, it is not a government uh, that conforms to like the American stereotype of like what a quote unquote like free society is supposed to look like um, to use how John Foster Dulles himself characterized, you know, like the free world to which a state like South Korea belonged, uh, you know, whereas North Korea didn't. Um, and, you know, in spite of that, it's also then, you, you know, you, you look at the. The, the, the overwhelming evidence, which is that, like, you know, the New York Times will run gigantic, you know, glitzy, interactive investigations into how North Korea illegally gets oil. Why is it a problem that North Korea gets oil? Because apparently you can use it for weapons. You also can use it to keep people's lights on and help them get to work and stuff. But like it can also be used for guns. So, you know, we, we just we, we have treat we treat it and have made it into like a pariah state. That is, you know, like the Nazis, except like it it's still around and in spite of it, as if like, you know, again, and this is where I think like the racism also comes up where it's that like, well, why is it that this government is able to stay in power there, you know, for 70 years? And, it, you know, and, and why is this continuity uh, of government exist? And a lot of it is this idea, again, of like, you know, brainwashed Orientals or something like that. And it is, you know. It's it's not it couldn't at all be because of, you know, our crazy sanctions or the, you know, like salty earth, you know, like war that we waged. Also, they've been there there have been many times that the governments in both North and South have tried to take steps toward reunification because that was the goal of the Korean of of the North Koreans in the 1950s, as it as it was also the goal of the South. Both of them didn't recognize the 38th parallel and they wanted to reunify the country. The difference was the North had a broadly popular government that was socialistic, uh, which is the type of politics that got you killed in the South. And a lot of people had them. And the South was a deeply corrupt and unpopular government that had already killed tens of thousands, if not 100,000 people. And so the North calculated almost correctly that it could unify the peninsula by force 
and that this re-government would collapse, which it actually did until we stepped in. Because people want to, when they imagine North Korea in 1950s, and they imagine it as the hermit kingdom dictatorship, but like the, the communists in North Korea had the same popular legitimacy that they did in Europe at that point. Correct. Because they were the ones who yes. driving out the yes. fucking fascists. To that point, actually, like, to that point, I think like this would be a good point to uh, contrast the leaders of the Korean War on the north and south, southern sides. Sure. Kim Il-sung in the north and Sing Min Rhee in the south. What are their biographies and like leadership styles? What does that tell you about the respective political movements <laughs> and the forces that they represented and the forces that brought them into conflict? Sure. I can I'll take Rhee, you take Kim. Sure. I guess with Rhee, the like the uh Rhee is a, you know, he he is basically able to be a credible political figure in South Korea at the time of the sort of events of our story in the late forties and, and early fifties. Because, yes, he was, you know, against Japan, but he wasn't in the country, so he couldn't have collaborated with Japan and to have then discredited himself. So he's like, you know, as as he is the Which most you know, of the other southern leadership was tainted yeah, so by collaboration. It, he's like how Okrumbo got to not vote for the Iraq war, even though he was in the fight. <laughs> <Illinois State. laughs> or or how Rumsfeld Rumsfeld was sent to Brussels before Watergate happened. So he didn't mm. have his political career tarnished by by Watergate. Uh, yes, Singman Rhee was getting a bunch of PhDs in America. Right, he studied with Woodrow Wilson, who is also, you know, viewed as like at least on the international level, like as the kind of father of you know liberal internationalism and so on. And Singman Rhee, you know, certainly, you know, like spent a lot, you know, studied under him and came away and went back to be a statesman in his home country and promptly turns into a gangster autocrat. Yeah. He is a, you know, he he consolidates all of the power in the state as much as he can in the executive. And a lot of the way in which the power is enforced locally, I mean, it's it's, you know, in the second season, when we talk about Cuba in the 1940s and 50s, we describe it, the, the, you know, borrowing the title of a book, uh, you know, gangsterismo, which is to say that you have a, you know, sort of backwards uh, agriculture economy. And then the nascent bourgeois life is just plagued with corruption and graft. And yeah. it's dominated by right wing and military figures. And Singman Rhee is, you know, just sort of like he's a he's a great example of how, you know, often the heads of these movements are not are just not remarkable other than just that, like they're brutal and venal figures who represent the brutality and venal venality of their right wing you know, political movement so perfectly. And, and just to put a finer point on it, that the nature of the government in the South with Singman Rhee at the top was overwhelmingly Japanese collaborators, or rather collaborators with Imperial Japan, which was for decades, you know, the colonial uh, occupier of Korea. That meant that the government was from the get go, and the U.S. had a part in putting that government together uh, since we were occupying the South. And for not just years. like the same DMV officials went over, but like you know, like the the poli like literally the same like you know like secret police officials from yeah. who are one day working for the Japanese are. You know, not, you know, if not literally the next, maybe a couple weeks later working for the South Koreans. Also paramilitary groups, a lot of, you know, youths like sort of brown shirt style gangs, stuff like that. Now, now in the north, there was Kim Il-sung and 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 his sort of comrades from World War Two, because uh, unlike Syngman Rhee, Kim had been fighting in really the worst of the worst conditions in Manchuria during World War Two. And he was even there was even a uh, the, the Japanese hated him so much. He was such a particularly effective um, resistance figure that they founded a get Kim squad to specifically hunt down and kill Kim Il-sung. So that's a pretty good pedigree when 
liberation happens and people are looking for a leader. And he was, uh, he and several of his top guys were like, like the Cuban uh, guerrillas. They were, they were known for, for actually sticking around and fighting for the country. The United States and South Korea for decades, it was the official line that Kim Il-sung was in fact an imposter who had stolen a dead guerrilla's identity in order to Take he was Don fucking Draper. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Talk about the way that was like that was the you know it was it was kind of startling to like you know read you know going back and reading you know the New York Times articles uh, you know about like create this time and and then you just see it it's right there that like Kim Il Sung who is an imposter whose identity was believed <laughs> to have been stolen and it's you know under like Hanson Baldwin their military editor or whatever you know like there, there's it's very. The like, you know, the, the kooky the hermit- myths go, go all the way back. Yes, yes. Know. Like it's and, and and that's, you know, that's a pretty top shelf, goofy, you know, crazy myth. I'll concede. But th- there is a lot of other stuff of that caliber in this story. For sure. It's like it's like when people think that uh, that Joe Brandon is dead and he or or, <laughs> or what do, do people think he's dead? Is that a current? No, I, I, honestly, I, no. I, they I think they're more happy. People who oh. hate Brandon right now are much more happy with people thinking, yeah, that's really him. <laughs> like, <laughs> president. I, I think what you're thinking about is the people who think Joe Kennedy Jr. is alive. Oh, OK, yeah. I and he looks like and, and he looks like this, like homely italian man <laughs> yeah, yeah uh but yes yeah, so, so anyway the the, the differences uh reflected in the government again with the, the south being a gangster state the north was kind of your typical um you know mid-century socialist thing where yes there was uh basically a one-party state governing a with a popular revolutionary program to redistribute land uh to uh uh, reform, education, health. Uh, you know, there was a literacy program just like there was in Cuba. Um, and of course, very different attitude toward the collaborators with Japan, uh, which again was legitimizing. And you also brought up the Manchuria point, which I think is, is, is crucial to bring up, which is that like, you know, this was an internationalist like struggle. Like, like it wasn't like it, like the Korean War. Yes, it was a you know Korean civil war functionally, but it was also, you know, taken in a in a in a in a wider context it was also part of the struggle where you had had many of the people leading the struggle for the north and north korea they had become you know battle tested and had effectively you know cut their teeth fighting in manchuria in these like horrid conditions so you know kim in a sense like yes he and his core guerrillas were in manchuria and what's more so much of the leader, you know, the the leadership and the and the strategy and the tactics and just the the manpower of the KPA, the Korean people, Korean People's Army, had had you know they, they had been forged in the you know the, this yeah. cruci- their own crucible of Manchuria. Which, by the way, then you know you wonder, like, gee, why is it that? The like, you know, er brainwashing movie, The Manchurian Candidate, is about a bunch of people who can't remember, you know, all this stuff that is, again, related to, you know, this. Uh, I, yeah, I the, mean, like <laughs> the, the, the shock troops, uh, when the Americans initially get their asses kicked uh, in June 1950, they, they were all guys coming back from Manchuria. Uh, so, yes, uh, it was very, very different governments, uh, but they they were essentially thought to be temporary uh states that there was going to be a reunification which nowadays you know north and south korea sounds as natural as north and south carolina but this was such a live question for decades and in fact war almost broke out again several times because of how live a question it was okay so i got it's like like those are the people like on the north and south korean side basically Mm -hmm. like the south korean government were 
uh, sort of gangster nationalists and Japanese collaborators, yep. and the North were basically the people who people who fought the Japanese. But yeah, you got Robin Hood versus Vidkun Quisling here. Who are you going to pick <laughs> if you're just yeah. a regular, simple Korean peasant? Also, well, who's oh, going to be I, your I democratic preference? <laughs> I, I just want to add on that on that point of democracy. Um, the first mass elections is Susie Kim, who's also the scholar who makes the point about Rumsfeld you mentioned earlier. Uh, she's a guest on the show, um, incredibly, incredibly great book called Everyday Life in the North Korean Revolution. Uh, she points out that the first mass elections in Korea ever were in not the democracy of South Korea that we sponsored. They were in the North. And it was a preferential voting system. It wasn't exactly like American elections, but it was massively uh, enthusiastic uh, yeah, it wasn't people, like American elections. It worked. Yeah, and and that is how p- people made you know the the democratic decisions. Now, of course, the war brutalized a lot of stuff, including political practice in the North, and a lot of this more openly participatory stuff gets subsumed into a class. We saw that. That was yeah, that was exactly. our whole that was the goal. Yeah, make sure this does not happen. So 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 the North, nevertheless, had to uh, by the political logic, it took on the popular elements of of what was going on in that revolution. Cause Korea had a revolution just like Cuba had a revolution. Um, it's just kind of overshadowed by the fact that their revolution, uh, was met by even more violently, uh, than, than Cuba's was by a, a whole assault on the peninsula. I think that's because it had to, it, it was defining the new terrain because if you yeah. think of like, uh, I, I, I endorse the Michael judge thesis of, uh, the cold war as really world war three. This is Mike Judge As, of Beavis and Butthead. Yes. Uh, okay. uh, uh, no, Death was just around the corner. Uh, another podcaster, shout out to him. Okay. He's talked about uh, how uh, you, the Cold War is better understood as World War III, as, as the continuation of really the Second War after what the West understood to be essentially a truce uh, in which the communist bloc sort of thought of as like a more permanent armistice, similar to the way Stalin and Hitler uh, viewed the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, uh, and that the Korean War is the first like hot, outburst of a war that is going to continue across the world, but just not in Europe uh, well, until 1991, basically. Well, I mean, definitely the United States, the the flashiest, you know, aspects of foreign policy that were being talked about all centered around Europe and Asia was just not supposed to matter, um, right. at least as far as prestigious ideas of American, you know, post-war policy went. But then, yeah, as you say, the first thing that breaks out quote unquote, breaks out is in Asia. But for that reason, it was all the more uh, sort of um, deranged that this idea of Stalin commanding his puppet in North Korea, because by the way, the Russians or the Soviets did not install Kim Il-sung. Um, the uh, Stalin didn't want much to do with the Korean War a- at all. Uh, Kim said, you know, does this is this all right with you? You know, he's Stalin's the biggest, you know, um, most powerful head of a communist state. So Kim ran it by him, but Stalin uh, didn't command him to do it. He actually said, you also, you also should you know, make sure that Mao's okay with you doing this. Um, but no one ordered him to do it. It was his own policy because he was, in addition to being socialist, he was a nationalist and he wanted to unify Korea. Anyway, um, that's a very different read on the situation than we're told. I, I, might, I might disagree with that thesis, though, about like, the truce versus armistice, because the Soviets were deeply interested in a long peace with the West. Um, we go into that in episode two or episode three. Right. Um, no, I mean, because- is that they, they thought that they were they thought that they were negotiate They were in a truce period towards a negotiation of a larger peace, the way that you had the, the gap between, you know, the end of World War One and the signing of Versailles or whatever. I think the U.S. never thought that. 
The right. US, oh, yes. US never yes. thought of it in those terms. Correct. Absolutely. They always correct. thought of yes. it as that yes. we are going to initiate violence oh, yes. again but as then soon I completely as it is agree. advantageous to us. And I completely Korea agree was the perfect spot to do it. A, a, a limited amount of uh, risk of escalation, and yep. you establish literally a line. Well, and then I mean, all the, you, all the war that can then like settle along that line well, and be fought until, away from power so that you won't trigger a nuclear war. Until, uh, until, until, a, guy, until a guy named General MacArthur comes along and proves right, that yeah. Russell is just goes, <laughs> Leroy Jenkins okay. directly into China. <laughs> <laughs> let's, 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 get oh to that, let's get to that part of the story because, okay, like, as, as we yeah. sketch it out the terms of it, like sort of similar to Vietnam, uh, the U.S. like national security state, which was really like nascent at the time, and the Korean War was really the truly in many ways the creation of the national security state that we would use to fight World War Three, you know, or i.e. the Cold War. Yeah. But like, OK, you have a, a government in the north that is socialist and is basically broadly democratically popular so that like if the country were to be unified either at the ballot box or with the bullets, that the north would be the victors. Correct. They invade the south. We have to make then uh, the United States gets involved. The, or sorry, the U.N. police action gets involved. Yeah. Then you introduce the, an American cast of characters, including Harry Truman, Curtis LeMay. And like you said, it, the old corn cob pipe, corn cob pipe sucker himself, General Douglas MacArthur. How did it go from being like we need to contain the Cold War along this border keep it away from power, keep it away from Europe and make sure the nukes don't get fucking launched to a what came very, very close to a nuclear conflict and basically incineration of the entire global population. Well, well. General MacArthur had a very interesting mother named <laughs> Pinky. I'm not kidding, named Pinky. And she, I think, really developed in him a uniquely uh, powerful desire to conquer and to essentially produce a zero-sum mindset because she was sort of a Norma Bates figure. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to lean too hard on the psychology, but uh, she dressed him as a, as a girl until he was uh, in his teens. Uh, she moved across the street when he went to West Point and had dinner with him every night uh, and asked him, you know, to keep her updated on all the gossip at, at the school. And this guy was, uh, you know, it was Olivia Soprano situation he was he was awesome yeah she, i mean you can like disagree with treating your son that way but she created an awesome adult she did the guy like, was like, singular. yeah like like um <laughs> this is like uh deep macarthur lore but when he uh <laughs> he, he argued he argued with uh fdr and fdr went you'll not talk to your president that way and MacArthur stormed out of the White House crying and then threw up. <laughs> <laughs> That's alpha behavior. Yeah. Yes. Uh, no. The, 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 was it, I, I think he's the guy who, like, had an affair with his niece. No, I, I don't think he ever had an affair with his niece. It was no, over Cleveland. Yeah, no, no, that, no, it's... That might be... Or I don't that know. That was the teenage girl that he was into. I'm thinking of a general who did this, not, okay. like... Uh, but no, uh, the po MacArthur was one of the greatest generals we've ever had. Well, he also, I mean, <laughs> my, my, my favorite, like, MacArthur nugget is that, because this is, like, the, it, it kind of just illustrates, like, the crazy paradoxes of the guy. When he was at West Point, he also testified before Congress about being hazed. Um, and, like, you know, it, it, so, so I want to I wanna also, He was a though, small like, bean. So here, think about this, though. So, like, you know, in, in historical context, the, like, 
these days, like the, the military academies are a joke, but once upon a time, you know, like, you know, a military academy is where Napoleon was born for, you know, for what it's worth. Like they used to actually be viewed as the place where like the operators of the of, of a state were, were hatched. And the idea of like hazing and scandal at one of them, uh, you know, it's 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 more crazy now. But MacArthur testified and everything. And then he went back to school and was apparently like pretty well liked and popular. He was very successful. Like he didn't you know, he didn't suffer for it. Um, and I think to me, like that is How like, is he hazed, though. I think it was just a lot of beating, and then there, like the the book I read, like getting off, just like it, like I just assume that like it's you know it's like it's just like they tell you like oh it was a lot of rough and tumble you know drinking and memorizing, pulling the shit out we of people. They were, that they were, from England. That's how you create the yeah. driven, yep. repressed sadists yes. that you need to command a fucking worldwide empire. I just, I, I, That's I just why our generals read. stop being fruity. Yes, stop doing stuff. <laughs> you, know, you know who yeah. loved MacArthur was. Our, it was the special boy president. He would always bring up MacArthur. He said, if he could see us now, if he, if General MacArthur could see us now, that's so good. That's so good. Um, Another incredibly pretty straight guy. Yeah, I know, yeah, 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 yeah. Power. MacArthur, MacArthur uh, would have been like military dictator of America, but then like every, all, all, all the most evil senators did mean girls to him. <laughs> What a great ending to a life. You're not far off, man. You're not far off. That's literally what happened. There's there's a quote here in the, uh, just for some more color here, in the David Halberstam book I want to read uh, that I just found was funny. Um, Talking about MacArthur. MacArthur hated all presidents. Roosevelt to him was Rosenfeld. And Truman, he would refer to... (laughs) And and Truman, he would refer to as, quote, that Jew in the White House. (laughs) Harry S. Truman. Wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> and then, and then and then his 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 aide his or whatever says, which Jew in the White House? The puzzled Bowers once asked. Truman, MacArthur answered. You can tell by his name. Look at his face. So quite the character. Harry Truman was like a hillbilly. That is a <laughs> yeah. goddamn Jew. Not even thinking. Amazing. Yeah, Independence, Missouri, where probably the only Jew who ever went there was Lynch. Harry yes. Truman, definitely. Harry, Jew. Yeah, Harry Truman like showed up to the White House wearing like a <laughs> fucking uh, piece of candy rope from his yeah, ass. Jed Clampett was inspired, tied around right? a seersucker suit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but but Ike. but but what you're getting at, Will, is that there is a a one of the th- the threads of this season is within the American ruling class uh, on the issue of Korea. There is a serious standoff because Truman and the sort of fancy boys like Dean Acheson, they are enlightened. They they want to kill you know two to four million Koreans, but nice and tidy. Keep it restricted to that little peninsula to draw a line in the sand, literally, uh, in the coming Cold War. MacArthur and the hardliners, maybe guys like Joe McCarthy at home, they want this to be a final showdown. They're they're not interested in the long piece. This needs to bring in China and the Soviets, which, of course, uh, halfway through the Korean War, they they test their own nuke. So uh, the uh, standoff between Truman trying to contain the supreme commander in the East who is actually running the war and starts to go over Truman's head. This is a whole other aspect of, um, and, you know, and, like a whole other showdown. And I think also one of the other things that made this season kind of fun, uh, is that, you know, as that pressure from MacArthur is mounting in this really crazy way, you also have, uh, on the home front, not just in the form of the anti-communist politics, but also like really serious economic pressures that are, you know, 
for the first time since the you know since Pearl Harbor really beginning to bear on the American public. The you know for example the period of 1950 to 51 is now being talked about again just because it was one of the last like half dozen period half dozen periods or so of high inflation and. To my mind, part of the way in which the Korean War manifests also as a response to like economic pressures and the idea that a total war economy is a way of sustaining the you know growing capitalist state without having to actually compromise on the distribution of the pie in many meaningful ways. And, you know, working also further to secure the, you know, the the the, the butt end of that by uh, making sure that there is, uh, you know, like the, the plantation economies ready to exploit uh, abroad that you need, you know, or or sorry, as they're also known, foreign markets. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like back back to those satellite images, um, uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, your, your guess, the point she the point she makes about like, oh, like uh, North Korea, it's just like there's no electricity there. Well, there are tons. There are, there are huge swaths of like Africa and Asia that have like way less electrical infrastructure than North Korea does that are equally yeah. if you flew a satellite a fucking spy satellite over them 10,000 times yes. to create that composite image would be even more off the map. But they yes. are integrated into this yeah, global plantation foreign market system. So, like, so it's not it's not really an issue that you can't see that they're like Christmas trees lit up uh, after the war. Fucking, yeah. During during the like the, 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 the half century after the war, uh, uh, South Korea got more American uh, investment in aid than Africa did entirely. Yep. That South Korea bit, is a very small country. It's a very it's a small country. Postage stamp. <laughs> yeah. The entire they, continent of Africa. They, that is basically, is, given the, the system we're talking about, a direct wealth transfer. Yeah, they, there were moments where the South Korean uh, budget was just United States aid. Like the, the the government's budget period was just U.S. money. And frankly, what we talk about in the final episode is, you know, good on Syngman Rhee. He was sucking yeah, that teeth that drag. You know, well, like, and then, <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you have like you know, it, you know, and then it's like, who's that money going to support? At, you know, after you know, after a, a dazzler like Singman Rhee, it ends up being like this just fucking carousel of you know, like this is the thing, right? Is that it's more money than all of Africa got, and it's going to the worst people in the <laughs> continent. Yeah. Like, yeah, the the, like the military absolute absolute criminals, military gangsters, yeah. and uh, you know the court, the 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 heads of the Kaibal who are you know collaborators with the Japanese, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's it's cartoonish, you know. And there's cables. Is that it? Is that what yes. they call them? Like the the, the just these the family based like Hyundai, conglomerates that are just sitting on top of the economy like yep. fucking cartoon fat cats at a goddamn yes. uh, gilded age comic strip. There's a and and this is a. On, on the South Korean side, there's a there's a great story of uh, we, we talk about it in, in episode 10. But uh, one of the military dictators, really the first military dictator, uh, Pak Chung-hee, he is assassinated. Uh, not it doesn't seem like it was a proper coup. He's at a KCIA safe house because the Korean CIA was literally called the KCIA. It's, um, it's like and K-pop. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and we helped set it up, obviously. Uh, and they collaborated, like by the K-pop. way. CIA project. Back. <laughs> they they also, by the way, they set up the Unification Church uh, that is now in the news because of obviously uh, ties to the assassination of Abe. But anyway, um, the the military dictator is is talking with his spy chief, and out of nowhere, um, the spy chief whips out a gun and shoots the president dead. 
is sort of, I, th- I think the clip I drop, because they're going, well, how can we, how can we talk about these, you know, what can we do to, to address these problems of you know, these people in the streets and the Americans don't care. And it, it almost is like in uh, History of Violence, he goes, you can do something, I guess. You can die. And he just whips <laughs> out a gun, blows him away. But then, you know, it's chaos and another, you know, strong man shows up. And how do you fuck that up? How do you fuck that up? It's how do you fuck that up? Because then then there's just, as Noah said, a carousel of all of these horrible, like, gray military um, bureaucrats just running that country forever. And then even when they Great get, men, you know, the Ryan yes. Gosling. Yes. Uh, but but anyway, um, yeah, so so it's it's actually a very interesting thing to look at what happened in the decades after there's like these raids where there was assassination team sent into the blue house which is the presidential you know palace in south korea kim il-sung tried to just ice the the uh the military dictator that was and then, okay okay wait wait the uh the I, I did not know about the north korean commando raid to try to assassinate literally in the korean white house the blue house yes but then there was a tra- there was a south korean commando unit that yes. was trained to retaliate for the Blue House assassination attempt. Yes. What happened with all of the commandos who were trained to yeah. do that raid? That story is fucking insane. Well, uh, I mean, Brendan could say more a bit about it, but just uh, up front, uh, it, it, was, uh, it went even worse than the Bay of Pigs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yikes. By the standards of the people who imagined it. Yeah. Like the Bay of Pigs, they did land. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Unit 684 is the name of this this uh, crack team that South Korea assembled and they trained uh, under horrible conditions. It was about, it was like a you know, c- couple dozen guys and it said that they were all criminals. Like it was like a dirty dozen type thing. But I, I, I don't know if I, if, if, if that's actually factually true, that might've been initially planned, but they just took civilians at any rate, they were training to assassinate Kim Il-sung and they were horribly just like beaten and brutalized by their trainers, by their military superiors for years and years, and then because I think relations thawed in the early 70s, this is near the end of the 60s, by the early 70s, relations were kind of thawing. So after seven of them died because uh, one was from malnutrition and then the others were just executed because they were either doing crimes or rapes or um, like drugs, they were all, you know, they, they, they were just deleted from the team. Then finally, they are approached by their military trainers and said, uh, you know what? Actually, this is all called off. You're not going to go assassinate Kim. The plan's off. And <laughs> these guys mutiny and they go, fuck that shit. They kill all of their hand, almost all of their handlers. They leave the island. They, they hijack a bus in the mainland and, and go to Seoul where they stand off with police and soldiers and uh, all of them die either by getting shot or by blowing themselves up with their own hand grenades. It is it is an insane story. It's they were they were called Unit Six Eight Four, and we talk about it in the show. But uh, I had never heard of that before we uh, before we did the show. Yeah, yeah, that that story. I mean, yeah, when you said it was like a, a good chunk of the people who were trained for this raid were executed by their own commanders for desertion yeah. or yes. fucking insubordination before, like years before the the raid was ever going to take place or ever was even intended to take place. Yes, but uh, I think there's a movie about it that they made in in Korea. I think they did. Well, it would make an excellent movie. I mean, that's what obviously. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Let's um, do an American remake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chris Pratt, get all the Chris's in there. The, the Gray Men. Yeah. The gray Men. <laughs> now we're talking. That's yeah. Gray Men. Oh, Russo Brothers, get on it. Yeah. 
I just want to like go back to like the, the prosecution of the war itself. Oh yeah. And as we alluded to at the beginning, like the the genuine like barbarity and like genocidal level of violence involved in it. So like basically like World War World after World War II ends, like the American like military machine is like the Colossus is striding the globe. Like America is the only major country more or less left unscathed by World War II, and the idea that we could be defeated or you know fought to a stalemate by North Korea and China came as a huge shock. So like what happened after the U.S. military planners and forces decided, hey, you know what, 38th parallel, that's just an imaginary line we made up. Let's go, let's go all the way in. Let's just, let's, let's go, let's, let's, t- let's take the whole North. And then what happens after China intervenes in the war? And then like what happens in the actual prosecution of the war for the Korean people and for like the, I guess, the, the, pe- the men fighting it? Well, uh, in fact, the, the Americans get their asses kicked in the earliest moments of the war um, and are driven to the southernmost tip of South Korea. Uh, there was obviously a great deal of um, sort of racist underestimation of the Korean forces. Uh, you had the military editor of the New York Times saying that they were, you know, uh, essentially apes. Um, and when things went sour, there were headlines. I think I have a headline here from the AP that's, um, it's, it's something like GI Joe learns that the gooks are good fighting men, you know, like it's, <laughs> that, that's a headline. Right. Um, and by the way, that slur, uh, is interesting in that it follows the MacArthur family, uh, from the Philippines, you know, the first, one of the first imperial holdings of the U S in Asia into the Pacific theater. So then it's used against Japanese and then, you know, where MacArthur also fights. And then also it goes into Korea. And then of course the whole point of a slur is these are all different nationalities, but they're all supposed to be the same. And then it went on to Vietnam, obviously. Exactly. So, um, so at first the North Koreans uh, almost do it. They almost unify the peninsula. That is when uh, the Americans get, you know, a shot in the arm. MacArthur, recovers quite quite handily and and it has to be said pretty pretty brilliantly with an invasion at Incheon which is on the west coast catches the north koreans behind their lines and then completely reverses everything so then the north koreans are in are in bad shape and they're retreating up the peninsula which is when the chinese come in now mao was very conflicted about the entire idea that kim had in the first place but among other reasons uh he couldn't very well say hey, I just finished up my own civil war and unified my country, but you shouldn't be doing the same. Don't try that. So he had to, you know, give it the nod. Then once MacArthur started to use, quote-unquote, rollback as a conspicuous, you know, road straight to China's border, knowing, as we know now, that he was looking to enlarge in the war and bring in what he thought was the real, you know, prize, which was China, um, probably out of some mixture of both ideological solidarity and, you know, real politique, uh, the Chinese dispatch uh, troops to Korea. And MacArthur in a very, I think I.F. Stone argues pretty well, MacArthur knows this and tries at every point to play down the chances for clashes when he knows there will be clashes, and then play up the idea that the, that the Chinese are, are doing atrocities when they, when they aren't doing atrocities, anything that can exacerbate the war. So uh, then at that point, the Chinese drive the U.S. right back down the peninsula with the North Koreans again. But then <laughs> the pendulum swings the other way once the U.S. starts getting hip to the guerrilla tactics uh, that the Chinese and the North Koreans are using. And then there's a stalemate, and that is when the air war, which had been uh, the U.S.'s, you know, unchallenged in the skies, 
ever since the beginning of the war. The next two years of the war are the, on the ground, it's a stalemate, but it's complete slaughter from the air. And that's when you get <clears throat> uh, the phrase that kept cropping up in our, you know, our research was no more targets. We bombed the country so thoroughly. We bombed the South as well, but we bombed the North so thoroughly with more, you know, uh, per capita bombs than were dropped in the entirety of World War II uh, that 40% to 90% of every North Korean town was just rubble. Um, and it was unparalleled. I mean, well, I guess it wasn't uh, unprecedented in the sense that it was taking Dresden or the firebombings of World War II and just applying it to an entire country with napalm as well, which was called the Wonder Weapon. And napalm actually, historian Bruce Cummings uh, is, is sort of the preeminent historian of the war, and he's the one who told us that this amounted, in his estimation, to a genocide. And it was right around the time the Genocide Convention was being uh, uh, formed that we were doing this. He argued that um, the effects of napalm and the, and the firebombing was actually worse in Korea than it would be in Vietnam, in which it was also, of course, devastating because of the nature of North Korea's geography and the concentration of right. the cities. Like this, wasn't, this wasn't napalm being dropped in you know, rural villages where people would, you know, even though like fires are getting, you know, think places are getting set on fire. Um, in North Korea, people ultimately had to start living in caves uh, entirely. They, they, they were living underground. Yeah, and, they started to they started to live underground, and as a way to just you know like it became a way of dealing with it, you know with the fact that America wanted to continue the war, and 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 you know the, what the the form that the war took at that time was a stalemate, um, until the you know the diplomatic conditions changed such that the Americans were able to make peace on terms that they, as in the Americans, were comfortable with. Yeah. They, so, uh, so it, in addition to all those conventional bombings, is it also not true that the United States might also have included some uh, some less conventional uh, weaponry in its attack on North Korea? So we some say? sort of some so, sort of uh, some sort of icky uh, yes. style weapons. Some gross stuff. Some yeah. weapons with chipotle sauce. Um, well, Noah Noah really sort of covered most of this uh, on the research side. So Noah, do you want to talk about the? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, We're talking, folks, about the allegations that the U.S. used germ warfare against the Chinese and Korean troops, which is a longstanding allegation of those of those countries, and uh, you know is is has also been alleged by many investigators and researchers in the West as well. Yeah. So we interview. We have two guests whom we really focus with this uh, about. The first is uh, Jeffrey Kay who uh, is on Twitter and uh, a really, really fascinating and smart guy who has done a lot of the archival research on this. And um, along with Nicholson Baker has published uh, some of the most interesting stuff about it in recent years. And Jeff has sort of brought back and resurfaced a lot of the evidence that had been conjured. Uh, and I don't say conjured in the way you know made up. I mean, like a lot of the evidence that had been assembled uh, by the Soviet Union and China um, in the years after the Korean War and during, you know, after World War II, because the 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 evidence that sort of Jeff ends up speaking about is that there were there were active biological weapons development programs that gave the Air Force basically to you know have the capability to use weapons that could do the kind of uh, you know germ warfare 
that was ultimately described and alleged on multiple occasions by North Koreans in the course of the war. The two dates uh, that like they specifically alleged this took place was in 19 uh, uh, the fall of 1950. So um, after the like d- during basically a retreat uh, after like yeah exactly d- the the period of uh, American retreat, then the the se- so then the second was in 1952 is when the the next set of allegations uh, are made, and the and the first set of allegations are made a couple you know a few months afterward or whatever. But the the lie of the 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 allegations are part of the discussion of the war as the war is being waged. Yeah, I was yep, just going to say that there's because what's undisputed is the sort of Mangala of Japan was a guy named Shiro Ishii who ran uh, what people may recognize uh, as Unit Seven Three One. This was you know a sort of germ warfare division. It, I mean, it was really just an all-purpose kind of uh, horrifying experimentation on human beings, uh, mutilating them, leaving them out in the cold to see how long they would die of frostbite, and then, of course, testing diseases on them. This is, uh, you know, just a matter of fact that the Japanese and Unit 731 existed. Um, You can see Shinzo Abe uh, in a photo back when he was still with us in a plane that says 731 on it, giving a thumbs up. Um, And... Sorry. And so after the war, much as, you know, in the tradition of, say, Operation Paperclip or, um, you know, Gladio stuff, MacArthur welcomes uh, figures from from this program into respectable society. And much like napalm, which was, you know, used near the end of World War Two or the looming threat of the A-bomb also innovated during the war. um, The U.S. is the allegation, of course, is that they were trying out this this other thing they had inherited from their enemies. And the, the, you know, to, to put a bow on it, the 731 uh, research tools and individuals were, you know, reporting has shown journalists, uh, including a guy named John Marks, who published a book in the late 70s uh, through the New York Times publishing imprint um, called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate. He uh, describes how the CIA sent people, uh, you know, with the explicit intention of conducting experiments using uh, material gleaned from Unit 731 uh, in Korea. So, you know, we don't know, like a lot of this remains, you know, the there there a lot of the evidence remains very, uh, you know, sort of like, like you know, the, the idea of a smoking gun uh, as a metaphor is very irritating for many reasons. Uh, but, you know, will there ever be, you know, a flight manifest of here's a bunch of anthrax or smallpox that the Air Force dropped someplace? No, but... There is, however, you know, to, to the other person we interviewed for this season about this was a guy named Tom Powell, whose father was a journalist named John Powell, who was based in China at the time. And John Powell was prosecuted by the federal government uh, for reporting on the allegations of bacteriological and germ warfare. And the Soviet Union and, and China, they organized an international committee to even investigate these allegations headed by the respected scientist Joseph Needham. But the uh, you know, like the, the people who attempted to, you know, even just do basic, you know, attempt to do basic truth telling about this, like Powell, were prosecuted. And so the you know, entire thing has ultimately it, it, it's you know, it's, it's difficult to talk about in terms of certainty of fact. But the preponderance of evidence, I would say, you know, I think our show sort of demonstrates uh, is that, you know, it's like it's it's 
it, it deserves to be taken far more seriously than the American yeah. government would have you believe. One one more button on it that's uh, that's fascinating is the other uh, supposed legacy of the Korean War is brainwashing. The American POWs getting brainwashed. Yeah, we want to talk about like you know the the major representations of the Korean War in popular culture. The Manchurian Candidate is probably yes. like the biggest one. Yes, and like yeah, like the Errol Morris documentary Wormwood. Uh, suggested like to speaks to this point about the idea of like oh like these these American POWs who would show up in propaganda movies or come home with accounts of you know war crimes or germ warfare if you could create in the popular imagination this idea like oh no they were victims of like this secret Chinese brainwashing program that could get you to say and do things that were wholly untrue you know yep. uh, Brendan James is the kindest warmest most courageous human being I've ever met yeah the nonsense uh, but I I think that. What's it's interesting to group these two issues together because um, that is why the convenient explanation of brainwashing starts to come up. And we play this documentary uh, that Reagan was in. He kind of hosts it. It's like half film, like reenactment of these troops getting brainwashed and half documentary, if you want to call it that. Um, but who was one of the guys who assesses the pilots who alleged germ warfare? Jolly West. Dr. Hmm. Okay. Lewis Jolly West. All right. Case closed. Case closed on that one. Uh, I guess like the, the last little like digression I want to uh, bring up um, before getting into bring, sort of reframing this in, in the present day and like current politics and, uh, you know, power in the globe yeah. is uh, the bit you have about like diplomatic cables, which would seem to imply of a huge role for Shanghai, Chiang Kai-shek and, Ch- and the Chinese nationalists in Taiwan in essentially starting the Korean War as a way to prevent Taiwan from being taken over by the Chinese communists. Yeah, yeah. Peter Dale Scott uh, uses the research of friend of the show and a guest of ours, Bruce Cummings, to argue. This is, you know, his argument that uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the cause of the Chinese nationalists was um, the primary uh, reason for the Korean War. I mean, I think we we air that. Uh, It's an interesting argument. I I, I don't know. Um, You could probably debate it different ways. But it's certainly true that on both sides of the war, Taiwan and China were really the more important issues to guys like Dean Acheson and to guys like Mao Zedong. You know, because Mao, Mao wasn't really terribly interested in getting involved in Korea until the U.S. blocked uh, the Strait of Taiwan. So uh, it was really possibly either a motivating factor or a very, very nice perk that the conflict in Korea allowed the U.S. to shield and... Um, protect Chiang Kai-shek at a moment that it looked like he was really down for the count. And this is where the, you know, the, the, the convergence or or rather the, you know, the, the, the China lobby as sort of an entity, like if you go to the Truman archives website and you look at the, you know, the different boxes that they have for the, you know, Truman presidency that you can look at, they have one, you know, a lot of them are pretty generic, but one that they have that like really stands out is just like Truman and the China lobby. And it's because it was this, you know, I think it's kind of hard to, I think oil, maybe fossil fuels, maybe come close today and in industrial uh, commodities. But like the, you know, this was a group of business interests that, you know, included the founders of the John Birch Society that included some of the biggest, you know, uh, business interests of the day, armaments, leaders, uh, manufacturers. And yes, they were supportive of Chiang Kai-shek. But the China lobby and the cause of China in this way, it was a, you know, it, it was a, I think, a, a symbol of a, you know, and, an, you know, of what they viewed as this, you know, I mean, 
and I, I'm sympathetic to the to Peter Dale Scott's argument here that it was, uh, you know, part of the reason that they were so aggressive on Chang was because, yeah, they viewed this strategic, uh, they viewed protecting Chang as much more strategically significant than, say, Korea. But those people, as Korea becomes the more significant ongoing crisis, it is those China lobby figures, you know, through the guise of MacArthur, who end up becoming the people that are really driving events. So, you know, it's one of the things, I guess, a little bit frustrating about calling them China, the China lobby, because really it's like, you know, the, the warfare state used to borrow uh, another book's title. All right. Well, let's let's just let's talk about North and South Korea in the present day, because mm -hmm. I mean, like since, since the end of the well, I mean, I guess the Korean War never really ended. But until yeah. like, the you know, our, you know, hostilities, I guess, ended in the DMZ and joint security area were established. So like U.S. policy towards North Korea has more or less remained unchanged. I, I would say not not exactly because there was a a moment of hope in the '90s that was sort of the basis for what was called the Framework Agreement. And I won't get too bogged down in details here, but basically, the Clinton administration, after hitting Nor the, the North Koreans really hard, uh, and in addition to using the famine that was happening there as as a way to kind of wait out the clock, um, once that became clear it wasn't going to happen, there was an agreement struck up. And a lot of diplomacy that happened where Jimmy Carter intervened uh, in, in the mid-90s to smooth over a arrangement where the North would uh, stop uh, pursuing nuclear energy without the you know, approval of the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, and that the U.S., as a guarantee, would build, help build uh, light water reactors. So, you know, if you want your nuclear energy, we'll help you do it. And everybody wins. Uh, and we're not worried about you, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote, blowing us up or whatever, even though I think at this point, listeners might understand why the North wanted a, a, a nuclear guarantee, uh, you know, against any aggression from the United States. That was um, going to be, and a lot of people thought it was the basis of a lasting thaw. Right when Bill Clinton was actually going to have a summit in Pyongyang, which Madeleine Albright had at that point visited and State Department people had visited had come back with apology of, a policy of engagement. George W. Bush may or may not have won the 2000 election. And so when the Bush people came in, they made it very clear to the Clinton people, the transition team said, we're not into any of that shit. We're not interested in the Pyongyang summit. Don't go. So Clinton didn't go. Because if you go, we're just going to undo all of it. And, and indeed, the same thing for this framework agreement. So then the Bush years are extremely chaotic. Mostly we put on negotiations in order to blow them up. Uh, this is, of course, the era of John Bolton as national as a, as a, a key figure of international policy. And then Obama's uh, approach was, quote-unquote, strategic patience, which was another way of saying not doing anything, except covert action to hack into their missiles and stuff, which, which we did, and give the South more missile, missile defense systems. <clears throat> uh, people have called it nothing for nothing. Um, so... Then you get Trump <laughs> and that's when things get really spicy because it's completely, I mean, it's, it's completely unforeseen that he would oversee the, the biggest breakthrough in diplomacy for, for decades. And it's also sort of fitting that like, in spite of the fact that it was legitimately the biggest in decades and, you know, it, sh it should not be taken lightly. It was also uh, sort of Trump hitching his, uh, hitching his wagon to forces that were already sort of germinating on the Korean peninsula itself. Yeah, I had to watch so many uh, clips of, of MSNBC people, you know, for this show to 
hunt and gather for, you know, representative uh, stuff in, in the media. I think Rachel Maddow is really on one in, at some point about how Trump is legitimizing the totalitarian dictator, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the, the point, I guess, was supposed to be that uh, Trump wasn't giving Kim anything. He was just out of nowhere getting Kim the prestige he needed with the rest of the world. And that until that Trump meeting, uh, Kim was completely isolated, which is completely wrong. The entire year or so before Trump met with Kim, there was a um, in- incredibly promising period of diplomacy. It's called the Sunshine Policy in South Korea with South Korea's then president, Moon Jae-in. And they were already uh, collaborating in new ways and opening up spaces for trade and building railways, Kim and, and the South Korean president. Trump probably saw an opportunity in that the same way he would have if, say, you know, is, Israel and Palestine started having constructive conversations and stepped in to, quote unquote, make a deal. And that was after he called Kim Rocket Man uh, for, uh, you know, six months. Um, he completely flipped. And we talked to some peace activists um, in the show who were talking. It's really tragic how incredibly they excited, how incredibly excited they were at this moment. Trump or no Trump, it was looking like things might actually be coming together the way it kind of looked like in the Clinton years. <clears throat> but then we learned that Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, who are actually running the show, and we all know Trump doesn't have terribly uh, involved uh, vision or managerial style on this stuff, that Bolton and Pompeo were sabotaging everything. And the North Koreans eventually said, you know, can you please take off the sanctions since 2016? Not even all the sanctions, just the latest ones at the summit with Trump in Hanoi and Trump walked out and he just said no. And then that was the end of that. You have a, uh, in the last episode, you have a great quote from a Biden official discussing what President Joe Brandon's policy towards North Korea is now. And they describe it as you described the, the Obama years as strategic patience and nothing for nothing. And yeah. then he just, they described the Trump years yep. as everything for everything. And they said, what is Joe Biden's policy? It's a little bit of both. Yep. It's halfway <laughs> in between nothing for nothing and everything for everything. So the it's, third some, way. it's the Goldilocks something for something. Something for something. Yep. Except it's not something for something. Because we're not doing any we're not talking to them. We're not giving we're not giving anything to them and Look, we're not getting it's anything back. Nothing and nukes for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and what's really interesting is like they know that the, the, the Cummings makes this point. Like the the missiles can be bought off. The, the North Koreans are like, look. Buy, buy us out. We have these missiles. If you want to take them away, what do give I got to tell you to, get, to put you in a couple <laughs> of uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles today? <laughs> you are not driving across that DMZ without all of these fucking missiles, okay? Israel, Israel was actually going to stop North Korea from um, doing a deal with one of I can't remember if it was Iran or Pakistan or something, um, and they were sending a, an emissary to North Korea in order to scuttle the deal and give the North Koreans. Uh, I, I don't know if it, I can't remember exactly what the package was, and the North was like, "Sure, fine, buy us out of this of this other thing, and we'll we'll cooperate." And then and the U.S. stopped it. So at least Israel knew that uh, you can't get something for nothing. And unlike North Korea, we probably couldn't buy them out of their nukes either. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess just like to just sort of uh, just take a broader view here. This is now the third season of Blowback, as I mentioned mm-hmm. with the first episode. The first season was about the Iraq War. The second season was about uh, Cuba. 
and you know, like all, all the attempts at the Cuban counter-revolution and the Kennedy assassination and Operation mm-hmm. Mongoose. Now season three, the Korean War. How do you see this season and the topic of Korea fitting into like the broad arc of blowback and this kind of like recovered history and like that you guys have, have created over the past three seasons of this show? Like, how does this story fit in and inform the larger like arc of mm. blowback? You know, you could actually sum it up if you wanted to be sort of pithy about it. Colin Powell gave this quote that we actually use in season one at the end of the Gulf War after, you know, kicking Saddam's ass where he says, I'm running out as, you know, the, the uh, head of America's military, essentially. He said, I'm running out of villains. I'm running out of demons. I'm down to Castro and Kim Il-sung. So there you have it. <laughs> Saddam, Castro and Kim Il-sung, that, that he summed it up. Those are our first three seasons here. And I think that <clears throat> the way they connect, what, what, what felt natural about going into Korea was that we started in the 2000s and then actually went backwards in time for our second season and then went backwards once again. There's a lot of through lines. There's these questions of WMDs, who has them, who's allowed to have them, uh, why they might want them. That's a through line. Um, but there's also the, and, and in fact, the North Koreans, uh, you know, want an, a nuclear uh, guarantee because they don't want to go the way of Saddam. And the Cubans wanted one because they didn't want to go that way either all the way back in the 60s. But we like to bring it back to the Bush administration and I start the season with a clip from Rumsfeld because I think just being our age, that is when a lot of this stuff crystallized. It's not like, not, it's not like the Bush administration represented something drastically new, but it did represent a sort of more honest or stark declaration of what all these seasons of our show are about. I don't know, Noah, if you... No, I mean, I, I, I think the only thing I would add is that uh, w- one of the things that we've had in the advantage of each of, I guess, the first... Uh, the first season, this was less true, but, you know, between less so, but like the but with this season and last season, uh, you know, the, there was a premise that is in a lot of Americans minds, even if, you know, a lot of people may not think of themselves as the kinds of peoples who accept those premises naturally, that Cuba is a horrible, dusted, you know, desperate, like totalitarian society, that North Korea is like a backwards hermit kingdom, like unworthy of our engagement. You know, that those are kinds of, you know, that like those are just like so such radically uh, untrue <laughs> as sorts of uh, perspe- as basic perspectives that to me, part of it is, you know, what is a uh, sort of uh, has linked them, um, you know, as a uh, mm-hmm. is in part that like, yeah, there's this opportunity to, you know, uh, as you know, like like there, there's a reason that these events are the photo negative of what Colin Powell is holding up so often, you know. All right. My last question. My last question before we wrap things up for today. Obviously, we all love blowback for, you know, the, the, com- the camaraderie, the chemistry between, you know, Brendan and Noah and all of the meticulous historical research. But when I think of blowback, what's my favorite things? It's the great Borelli, Brendan James soundtrack. <laughs> it's the John Thank Carpenter like synth style music that you come up with, Brendan. As a, as a, you know, are doing an original score for your podcast, and like each season, you have knocked it out of the park. So just, I know we're gonna have a little preview of the music at the yes. end of the episode, but if there's anything you want to say about coming up with the original score for Blowback Season 3. And just just that John Carpenter vibes that you're channeling, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Will. That's high praise coming from you, a fellow carp head. Um, I, I should say, first of all, the soundtrack is going to come out on August 1st. It was a lot of fun to put together. Um, and 
we got to even work with some string players uh, this time. It was really fun. There's actually some live strings, which uh, is is a great delight. I've never had you know a real musicians play my stuff before, so um, I hope people like it. I I think it's the best uh, music that we've had in the show yet, and uh, I've a sort of think the track I'm going to give you guys is called American Caesar, and uh, it is. The actually a, a piece of music that was used in an, in a trailer for season two that people wanted for a long time, and so I went back to the drawing board and kind of made it a a full track uh, rather than a kind of little little bite sized thing. So we can play out to that, but um, it was a it was a real fun thing to to make the the score again. And uh, whether it's entirely pretentious to make a score to a podcast or uh, something that people actually want, I couldn't say. But uh, but we 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 definitely I think it's it's a part of the show now, and we we like um, we like having the music be uh, another aspect of the show that people enjoy. So yeah, the great Varelli, the soundtrack's gonna be called the Blue House, and if everything goes right, it should be coming out on August first. All right. Well, today episode one of Blowback season three just dropped. If you know, I know I know if you're listening to this episode right now, chances are you're probably already a blowhead. But you've got, a, you've got all the blowholes out there. If they want Blowback Season 3, how do they get it this time around? So, if you want to listen to Blowback Season 3, go to blowback.supportingcast.fm and sign up. It's that simple. You can listen through, your, uh, through an RSS link to your, uh, you know, with your preferred podcast app. Uh, it doesn't work on a couple of them, including actually Stitcher, um, interestingly enough. Um, Oh and, no! <laughs> uh, and um, if you are, you know, if you have any questions or issues with signing up, uh, you can email help at supportingcast.fm. But you know, if you sign up, you will also, in addition to getting the twenty episodes of the show all at once, you will get access. You will get a code rather to get access, so you can buy half off uh, posters for the uh, blowback artwork because we know you people love it so much. And we Great art too. by Josh Lynch. It's, it's, it's so good, especially the seasons. Uh, you'll have an ad-free archive of all of the sh- of all of the shows episodes, not just the seasons. And we're also going to have we're also we also have some extra you know original music. On yes, there. there's there's some, some there's some B sides and some demos for people who like the music. And and actually, uh, uh, we the bonus episodes from the past, which include two of two of you gentlemen. We have the one with uh, Matt Christman and Felix Biederman. Uh, Felix's episode has not been available to to non subscribers before. I don't think so. That's the one where you and Noah talk about uh, Iraq War era. We talk about games. like what races of women are the best to date. Yeah, <laughs> the really like big departure from most blowback themes. Yeah. I don't really know why we did it, but uh, like you can listen to it now. Yeah, it's Man. now available. So there's a lot of goodies yeah. going along. Well, what about Andrew the blowback? Tate in. <laughs> uh what about the blowback episode featuring will menneker that is uh, a well, main that's always that's that's always been one of the most okay. downloaded in fact that's a main episode well that's you know so uh people have always had access to that where uh you you kindly yeah by, by the way just one last thing chris maybe i'll send you this there is a great trump clip that i uh, that i found in this season he's in the debate with joe biden and Biden's, uh, you know, hacking away because he legitimized North Korea or whatever Trump did. And Trump just goes, he goes, listen, listen, they tried. They tried to beat with him. He didn't like Obama. 
He didn't like <laughs> Obama. The way he says Obama and the way he did, says I did he didn't like Obama is is top ten uh, delivery. I'll 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 dig that clip up. American yeah. families. Kristen, they tried Very to quickly, meet with 10 him. Seconds, they tried to meet with him. He I wouldn't did. do it. He didn't like. Obama. He didn't like him. He wouldn't do it. There's, yeah. that, also, there, there's that clip from the 2020 election. It's not like Korea related, but it's Trump at a rally and he says, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Utter confidence. Um, I, I also, I, I'd be remiss. I forgot. Uh, I almost mentioned this. So apparently Nancy Pelosi's going to Taiwan. Hell yeah. That's still happening. Mm -hmm. Let's do it, so, baby. Let's be so, legends. So I want to say, you know, you know who else took a politically significant, you know, virtue signaling trip to Taiwan. That's right. Then called Formosa. General Chiang Kai-shek? Well, no, no, he was already there. I'm saying Douglas okay. MacArthur did. Oh, okay. But no, Nancy Pelosi's, I guess, uh, you know, making sure. She that, has like, returned. It, yeah, listen. Is she, is she actually just fleeing herself to Taiwan after being, you know, <laughs> discovered that uh, her husband has been doing insider trading the entire they have time. Different drink, they, have drink, they have drinking and driving is legal in Taiwan. So is insider trading. Yeah. Uh, she's going to deploy her golden triangle shaped parachute. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> Anyways. Okay. Well, gentlemen, Brandon James, Noah Cohen, blowback. Season three, the Korean War, the, Kore the Korean, the Korean Chronicles, Chronicles <laughs> of Korea is out now. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Always a joy. Thanks, guys. Thank Always. you. In, in addition to uh, Blowback, which you should be listening to, you should also be buying tickets for the Chapo Fall Tour upcoming in October. Saturdays in October in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Tickets available at chapotraphouse.com slash live. Uh, and also as a final uh, addendum, uh, Felix, it was Patton who fucked his niece. Oh, okay. yeah. General no, George S. Patton fucked his I niece. I knew it was another general. Yes. Okay, yeah. All right. Wrong theater. That does make that does seem like more of a Patton thing to do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Classic Patton. Well, yeah, I mean, like someone someone would be like, Isn't it weird you fucked your niece? And he'd be like, If you don't fuck your niece, I don't want you in my army. <laughs> <laughs> What's the fucking point of having a niece if you can't have sex with her? The Carthaginians fuck nieces. That's what made them take Rome. I'm picturing George C. Scott as Patton uh, say, screaming that with his George C. Scott scream. Didn't he play Patton? He yeah. did, yes. Yeah, he they did. Yes. He did. Made he movie. won the you know, movie. You know, he also he played won an Mussolini. Oscar and then he didn't pick it up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he played Mussolini as well. I never knew this in a TV movie about Mussolini. I really want to see that. Oh, man, he seems like he'd be perfect. <laughs> no dumb son of a bitch ever won a war by not fucking his niece. You win a war by making the other guy not fuck his knees. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, yeah, Hitler, no Hitler did that too. It's true. He did hit yeah. fuck his knees as well. That's what. That's why uh, Patton wanted to ally with the Germans after the war. It's interesting though. It's, uh, it's it's one of those instances where you really don't need to say you know who else wanted to fuck their knees or fuck their knees because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's already not a great thing to be. Doing. It's interesting though because. Hitler's niece that he fucked was his blood niece, but uh, Patton's was through marriage, and that difference is the difference between Nazi Germany and the United States. <laughs> yeah. uh, back season four, niece fucking of, the, of, of <laughs> great world leaders and generals. Let's fucking go. All right. Till next time, gentlemen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.